And hello and welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now. I'm Jake Novak here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Um, you know, today I want to talk about an interesting concept in debate or in the way that we analyze events or analyze political movements. And that is uh, something that can be uh, summed up by an idiom called the dog that didn't bark, the dog that not, that's not barking. Um, and there are a lot of different definitions that you could use to explain what that means, but let's use a very simple one, which is you have a situation where for years people tell you if you do A, then something terrible is going to happen. If you do X, then something terrible is going to happen, so don't do it. And Or people just, even if no one is saying that so much publicly, quietly, decision makers, whether they're presidents or prime ministers or even just bureaucrats, they'll just say to themselves maybe, well, this is an interesting and bold plan that people have said for a long time, but if we do it, something terrible is going to happen, or people will respond. This is, I think, the, the best definition of the dog that doesn't bark, dog that not barking, is that, oh, we, if we do this good or bold, or maybe it isn't, isn't good, but let's just say this, this bold policy that, people want, that, that some people say we should do, if we do it, there will be a large protest somewhere, and that protest could be violent, and it could be sustained, and it could be all over the country or all over the world. So that's why we're not going to do the bold policy. And I think that we've seen two really interesting examples pretty closely associated with the definition I just gave happen in real, in, in real life just in the last few weeks, and they both concern Israel and the Middle East. I think the first one, if we're going to go in order, is one that I've talked about a little bit already, and that is that massive explosion in Beirut a couple of weeks ago. I mean, it really looked like a sub-nuclear explosion, Uh, just barely sub-nuclear explosion, as we all know. You know that my exclusive reporting leading up to that explosion explained how Sources tell me there are two very, at least two very top-level Iranian military commanders at the top level of the Iranian regime, at least two, who have basically come over to our side, our side meaning the West, the United States in particular, and in some ways Israel, and are providing the United States and Israel, and I think the Kurds as well, with the locations of all the Iranian and Iranian militia hidden weapons and stored weapons all over the region, which is why so many Iranian targets, both in Iran and outside of Iran, have been blowing up lately, catching on fire. Any one of the three entities I mentioned could have been responsible for it. In fact, I'll throw in a fourth. Could be the U.S., could be Israel, could be the Kurds, could also be Iranians. I believe that there are Iranian dissidents now within Iran who are not in the top of any regime, but are part of kind of a clandestine revolutionary movement, whether it's very well organized or not, I don't know. I believe they're also responsible for some of these <laughs> these mishaps. Some of them are a lot more than mishaps. We had today, or at least over the weekend, Iran basically confirming my exclusive story. Iran now calling one of the first of those mishaps, one of the first of those major explosions at the Natanz nuclear facility. They're calling it sabotage and, and intimating that it was an inside job or at least an insider gave the coordinates, gave... The, the source codes so that someone could hack 
an outside gas tank that, that led to the major damage at Natanz and really set back their nuclear program. So Iran, just over the weekend, basically confirming the story that I had. I mean, I have, I, it's really a good confirmation of the work, or close, as close to it as I'm probably going to get for a while, of the information my sources have been giving me, which I, I had already trusted based on other events that had occurred since they first told me about it. So this is starting to look more and more like exactly as I reported. But when I'm talking about the dog that doesn't bark, I'm talking about something that really interesting happened. When you had that major explosion in Beirut, and you had people who might have immediately thought, well, this was the Israelis or the Americans who did this. You know, this was a Hezbollah weapons uh, depot, and we can talk about And usually, I think a logical person would say, hey, let's get angry at Hezbollah for putting these massive, massive weapons in the middle of a, of, a, of a city like this is outrageous. I mean, not that it would be great for them to put it in a field somewhere near the Israeli border with Lebanon, but it's really irresponsible and criminal to do so in a populated urban area. So that's what a logical person would say. And when you talk about the dog that's not barking, this is exactly what the Lebanese people have been saying since the explosion. Now, for years, we're used to the dog expecting that dog that's going to bark, which is a terrible mishap happens in an Arab or Muslim country. And immediately, Israel and the United States are blamed. Whether or not they're any way connected to it, it doesn't matter. We know that that's what happens so often. I don't have enough time uh, in, in a week to tell you all the examples where that, where that fits the bill. But the dog didn't bark this time. The people of Lebanon have almost in unison, spoken out against Hezbollah as they should, and Iran as they should, for putting all these weapons in this, in this ridiculous place, in the middle of an urban area, having all these weapons in the first place. Anger, they, angry that Iran is only interested in funding terrorist groups like Hezbollah. I mean, Lebanon's had some serious economic problems over the years, certainly over the last year. And this is what Iran spends its money on. Foreign adventures, foreign terrorism, Iran's dream of a Shia takeover of the Muslim world. We know about this, this story. Again, nothing new to us. But the fact that the dog isn't barking. The Lebanese people didn't march against Israel. The Lebanese people didn't blame this on the United States. Was the first dog that didn't bark in, you know, in, a, in a long while over here, as far as Lebanon is concerned. But we got a second dog that didn't bark with this incredible peace deal between the United Arab Emirates and Israel that was announced. Now that's more than a week now. And here we have more than a week passed since this announcement of this major peace deal. And another dog isn't barking, and that is the Palestinians. We've been told that Palestinians and Palestinian sympathizers, if another Arab country makes peace with Israel that those Palestinians and their sympathizers, and in many cases it's Iran, will punish badly both Israel and whatever country makes that peace deal with immediate attacks, immediate explosions, you name it, drones, rockets, the whole thing. Now, we've seen a slight uptick in the rocket launchings and the balloon bomb stuff in the last few weeks, but that started before the UAE-Israel peace deal was announced. And frankly, and I want to make it very clear here, 
I am not downgrading or downplaying in any way any rocket or any balloon bomb or anything else like that that goes into Israel. These are very serious, serious things. They cost lives. They cost tremendous property damage at times. And as you've heard me say many times here on the Nachum Siegel Network here on Novak Now, and something that you should always remember, and I hope that everyone listening here will start using this terminology because it's not only factually correct, but it's very effective. And that is, every rocket and balloon bomb that's launched at Israel is a double war crime. Why? Because if you launch an attack from a civilian area, that's a war crime. Because you are basically using those civilians as a human shield and putting them in danger. And if you launch a a, a terrorist attack or or a military attack of any kind from a civilian area into another civilian area, that is a double war crime. You know, you can be at a regular army base and attack civilians. That's still a war crime. If you do it from a civilian area, like the Palestinians do, like Hamas, Hamas does every single time, that is a double war crime. Thankfully, most of us and and most of the people that we know in our lives will never be guilty of even one war crime. But every time the Palestinians do this, Hamas does this, and Iran, which pays for it, is responsible as well, that is a double war crime. So I am not downplaying this. However, folks, this is what they do almost every day anyway. Rockets aren't fired every day, but they're they're fired, I, I guess, on an average of once or twice a week when you put it all together. It doesn't happen, you know, that's what the, you know, averages can be pretty misleading when you look at them from a mathematical standpoint. You know, if Hamas shoots 10 rockets in one day and then goes three weeks without doing it, it's still, on average, a rocket every other day, right? So my point is, the Palestinian response and even the Iranian response from a military point of view, from a terrorist point of view, thank goodness, has been basically what they do every day. Peace seal or no peace seal. It's a dog that's not barking, folks. It's a dog that is not barking. That doesn't mean there isn't some threat. And for the, there was a home in Stederot that was hit by a rocket. No, no joke, no fun. I understand that. I'm not saying there's no price to pay here. But the idea that the whole Arab world will go in flames will go up in flames against Israel and the United States over every one of these policy moves, whether it's a peace deal or other things I'll mention in a moment, I think it's been pretty well proven isn't true. And that for years, our leaders, both in the United States and in some cases even in Israel, have just not been bold enough to look at the realities here and say, you know, we got to stop letting bullies and terrorists dictate to us what we do policy-wise. Or the policy folks who come into our office trying to really make a name for themselves and giving us doomsday scenarios and knowing that, hey, even if they're wrong, the president or the prime minister is going to remember me. I was the one who brought him that really interesting report. This is going to increase my stature. I really think that there are a lot of people in the intelligence community and the defense community who subconsciously at least think that way, or at least you can see why they would. Now, again, if this all sounds familiar to this dog not barking argument, it should because we were given the same warnings when President Trump announced the moving of the embassy, the U.S. embassy, officially to Jerusalem. We were told this was a risk that wasn't worth taking, that even though it had been the official policy of this country and just about every president, Republican, I guess every president, Republican or Democrat since 1995, to promise this, to promise the moving of the embassy, Trump did it. And when he did it, a lot of people say, all the experts, and you can find it on Twitter, there's a guy named Drew Holden, 
Type his name in, Drew Holden, H-O-L-D-E-N. He's very good at um, documenting what everybody said in the past that was wrong. <laughs> he's very good at that. And he's got some, if you follow, if you really read into his Twitter feed and really dig into it and spend some, an hour or two reading it, it's all very entertaining, by the way, and informative. So it's not like it's going to be a waste of your time. But he found a bunch of people who, who, who predicted doomsday because of the Trump embassy move. And, you know, look, it isn't that the Palestinians accepted it peacefully. It's just they haven't done anything different than they'd been doing before. And there were the same doomsday predictions about President Trump and the Trump administration officially recognizing Israeli sovereignty in the Golan Heights. Folks, the dog isn't barking. And I think there are reasons for it that go beyond just the fact that, I, yeah, look, the Palestinians may have a lot of rockets, they may have a lot of weapons. They have those tunnels. We know they have certain assets, sadly. These are the assets that they consider to be assets, of course. It'd be nice if they had schools, hospitals, and other things in such abundance, but they decided to spend their money otherwise. But despite the fact that they have all this kind of stuff, they really are losing a lot of benefactors. The Saudi and Sunni-connected benefactors of the Palestinians, and Hamas in particular, have dried up years ago. I think, I think it's been four years probably since they've gotten significant Sunni money. Their money now is coming from Qatar, which is really just the clearinghouse for Iran. Iran is really the only source, and Iran's got economic problems of its own. Its markets have been crashing. It's been dealing with this reduction in the price of oil. They've had economic woes in their country, and the people of Iran continue to demand now that Iran stop spending money on all of its foreign wars and terrorist operations and, bring, and keep the money at home. I don't think any of that is working. The people of Iran aren't really getting anywhere with this, but they are getting with more sabotage and more protests, and they are putting a lot of pressure from inside on the Iranian regime. So that has a lot to do with it as well. But I think there's other aspects of it as well. I think the Palestinian leadership is devoid of any other ideas. They don't have any other ideas. What they may have done in the old days when Yasser Arafat was alive they may have called for an international conference, uh, an Arab League summit, uh, some kind of uh, petition to go to the, to the UN and complain about I – mean, I, I mean, honestly, would they go to the UN and complain about a peace deal? I mean, I, I wouldn't put it past them, I, despite how stupid that would be. But they don't even have that idea on, on, the, on, on the table right now. I think the Palestinians have kind of run out of ideas. It doesn't mean that the threat from Palestinian terrorism is, is gone – and they're, you know, they come up with these new ways to attack Israel, uh, like balloons, which, of course, are really scary because they attract the children's attention. And we know what can happen when kids touch you know, things like that. I mean, for you know, the, the, we knew about booby trap type stuff that really targeted true civilians. And the, there can be nothing more true, uh, nothing more dis- a civilian than a child. So when terrorists put bombs or incendiary devices in balloons or in teddy bears, or dolls, or things like that. That should be a triple war crime, but it's a war crime, <laughs> to say the least. So this is what they use their innovative, you know, their, their innovative thinking. They don't have anybody now. I mean, I think Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority, is well past his expiration date, I think, from a mental standpoint. I don't think he's running the show really in a sharp way anymore. In fact, there's evidence that one of Mahmoud Abbas's rivals for power in the Palestinian Authority from 15 years ago or or so, who has been living in the UAE for quite a while, may have had a lot to do with this peace deal getting done. 
And he now may have a shot at uh, trying to get power again within the Palestinian Authority. Whether he would be a lot better than Mahmoud Abbas, I don't know. But again, you can check my Twitter feed for that story. That was a Jerusalem Post story where they're following this particular former Palestinian Authority official who had a falling out with Abbas, left, you know, basically didn't leave. He was expelled probably for, to save his life, had to get out of with the West Bank and Gaza. He's a Gaza uh, native. And uh, they've got all the information on him. But the point is, the Palestinian Authority may have some shakeup now, and that would be good. Hamas is really the most powerful, though, Palestinian entity. And they, I don't know if they have any new ideas other than, well, we got balloon bombs now. But they don't have the political savvy. I mean, there were, there were times when Yasser Arafat and people like Abbas had some political savvy. It was, it was infuriating as all Zionists must have felt, all Jews must have felt when they saw these guys playing the news media and playing the politicians of the world, especially Europe, like a fiddle. But they did it sometimes and to sometimes with good effect. And it's not working now. Or they're not even trying. I don't think they're, they're just even trying. It's very difficult in, in, in the case of, of a peace deal. I don't know what they could do. Again, this would probably be something they would have to do within the Arab world and maybe try to shame the UAE and to some extent Saudi Arabia into helping them again. To do, and by helping, I mean giving them money for weapons and for payoffs and bribes or whatever they do. But I don't think that that's working. I think it's very, very clear that the Sunni Arab powers led by Saudi Arabia have had it with the Palestinians. They don't see them as a politically expedient group anymore because they need Israel more than they need them. And if Iran is going to be the only real challenger to Saudi Arabia's dominance in the Islamic world or attempted dominance in the Islamic world from a point of view of culture and in that region, all that stuff, then they don't have to care so much about the Palestinians anymore because Iran is never going to come to terms with Saudi Arabia anyway. Not the way this, not the way this is shaking out. So again, a dog that isn't barking. Now let me bring this to the United States. Let me bring this to the United States because I've already alluded to it a little bit. You know, we've already talked about how every president since 1995 from both parties gave this promise that they were going to officially move the, the embassy, the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem, because this was a congressional declaration that the presidents all signed off on, that they would move the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And nobody did it until President Trump. And nobody really seem to have the bold vision of a Sunni, or for lack of a better word, just an Arab-Israeli peace, a, a, a renewal of that, and putting the Palestinians on the side, because I kept being used as, a, as an excuse or a roadblock, and just moving on with other issues until this administration, and until Saudi Arabia had its changes, and Israel was able to get... I mean, they, they've had all these elections, I know, in the last few years, but Israel's leadership has been stable. They've had the same prime minister now for 11 years plus straight. That's well beyond the record for, for Israel. And that, I think, has a lot to do with, with this deal. I think that if there had been a back and forth and different prime minister every couple of years, like Israel kind of has had at some points in his history, this would have been a problem. This wouldn't have happened. But let's talk about the United States again and why all those presidents didn't fulfill their promise to move the embassy to Jerusalem. And I think that this was because they were worried about that dog that was going to bark. Now, I don't think that this makes them bad people. I mean, let's talk about all the, let's, let's name them. So it's, it's every president since 1995. So you're talking about Bill Clinton, 
You're talking about George W. Bush and you're talking about Barack Obama. And now, of course, you're talking about President Trump, Donald Trump. So what's wrong with what was wrong with Clinton, Bush and Obama on this? Why did they go into this holding pattern? And again, I think it's very obvious that there was a a dog bargain. I think a lot of them thought like, well, this is something that we could do as a bargaining chip in an Israeli-Palestinian peace deal. We could tell the Palestinians or the Israelis, um, Jerusalem's in in play. Whoever here does a better better deal with us moderating to get a real peace deal between the two of you, and then we'll decide what we do about the embassy one way or the other. I think that may have been part of the reasoning. But I think the biggest reason was they were worried that if they did this, that there would be a big uptick in, in Palestinian terrorism, a big uptick in Arab terrorism, and the United States would be punished not only against Israel, but against the United States. And that's what, that's what they were, I think, afraid of. And I'm sure there were plenty of people in the intelligence community who told them that that's exactly what would happen. Now, my objection to all that is, again, first of all, you can't let bullies dictate your policy. Your policy is either a good policy, a just policy, or it isn't. And if you're going to allow Congress to pass a resolution and you sign off on it to move an embassy, then you should do it. If you, unless you think it's a bad resolution, and then you can tell us, you can say so. I mean, it is a classic politician's move to try to take the credit for a piece of paper that gets passed and then not really pay attention to or take responsibility for the repercussions of that, of, of all of it, or actually do anything. You know, for one example, by the way, is Obamacare. <laughs> Obamacare gave everyone, quote, insurance. Did it give us actual care? You know, I fought a lot of battles in newsrooms over the years when that was going on, trying to get people to understand that Obamacare wasn't health care reform. It was health insurance reform. Health insurance and health care are two very different things. And signing a resolution or agreeing to a resolution to move an embassy and hoping that the voters, both evangelicals and, and Zionist Jewish voters, will vote for you because you've done a little photo op with a piece of paper, and actually moving an embassy are two different things, right? Yes, they are. And I think President Trump was the most likely to do this, not only because I think he's personally more supportive of Israel than his predecessors, that's kind of easy to see, but also because he's not a career politician. And I don't think that he considers all of the pluses and minuses of the things he says and does compared to other politicians. I don't think anyone could possibly debate me on that last statement. Now, for better or for worse, I don't care if you love Donald Trump or you hate him, it's fair to say that he does not consider the pluses and the minuses of everything he says and does in the same way as a career politician does. And I think in a lot of ways that's a positive thing about him, and in some ways it's a bad thing about him. But clearly that, I think, is a big part of what's going on there. I think he does not have – I'm going to put this in the most positive light here for a second and say I think that he just doesn't think and, 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 and about, well, the voters may be angry at me. I, I, think he, I think he does a lot of stuff with, hey, I'm just going to do the right thing here in mind. I think he does a lot of stuff with, hey, I want the voters to like me too. I, I don't think he's non-political. He's president of the United States, and he's run. You know, he's now in the middle of his second presidential uh, election. He's certainly to call him not a politician is not really factually true anymore. But the fact is, he does not think like a career politician. Anyone who says otherwise, I think, is really probably someone who's just like very deranged and doesn't realize that. Like, yeah, I mean, again, this you can still hate Trump and admit that he doesn't act like a regular politician. Come on, folks. So I think that that's a big part of it. But I think there's another part of it, which is, you know, I'm really indicting Clinton, George W. Bush, and and Barack Obama. I think that they were very happy 
to take the credit for giving lip service to moving the embassy, giving lip service to stuff like this, but not actually doing it. And that's what politicians do. Career politicians do that all the time. Now, there's a third aspect to this, which I think is really revealing, and that is how, for example, someone who I think really had the right idea, at least, or had the right intentions in the Middle East, somebody like a George W. Bush and his administration, but carried it out poorly. You know, the Iraq war was one of those things that somebody like me had a very difficult time putting into one category. Because as a pro-Israel Jewish person in America, I knew how much Saddam Hussein was a threat to Israel, how he was really funding terrorism. You know, we all know about the $25,000 bonus that Saddam would send to the families of suicide bombers. We, but, and it, it went beyond that. We know that he was, he was basically just a, just a, a rogue, tyr, you know, tyrannical dictator and a murderous one. So it wasn't like we were going to cry crocodile tears over an effort to overthrow him and to free Iraq from his leadership. But was, you know, in retrospect, was that really the best response to 9-11? And I think I, even at the time, this, I, I certainly was highly questionable. I did not think it was a good response to 9-11. I think very often people would come to me and they would say like, well, this is stupid about 9-11. I would say, yeah, you're, you're right. This isn't about 9-11. This is about getting rid of Saddam, who's a bad influence, which also would be a good thing. Of course, if we planned properly, maybe we would have realized that that would have given Iran a lot more power in the short run, which is what it did. That's a discussion for another time. But the point is, I think, now that we've seen what's happened in Saudi Arabia over the last six years, is it possible? Is it possible? I'm asking this question, and it's, it, it is a question that I'm not sure I have the answer to, but I'd like to hear from people who might know the answer. Is it possible that what has happened in Saudi Arabia over the last six years could have started on September 12, 2001. Could President Bush have said to the Saudis, you guys have got to reform your culture. The, most of the, the hijackers and the terrorists were from, from your country. Now, there's got to be some reformers in your, in your country who are willing to join with me and join with your king now and get this country moving in the right direction. Now, of course, the, the, the postscript to this is that starting in 2014, but really in 2015-16, that happened. That started to happen with the ascension of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who really runs the country. Obviously, his father's very ill. He's the CF. He, he's really the COO uh, of, of the country. He's really running it, operating it. And, of course, the question is, was there somebody like him? Now, he's only 34, 35 years old right now. So clearly, 16 years ago, he, would, he wasn't the guy. But was there somebody else in the royal family? Remember, it's a big royal family. There are hundreds and hundreds of Saudi princes. Were, was there a faction within the, within the royal family that the Bush administration could have reached out to instead of deciding to, well, let's focus on this Iraq war thing as opposed to let's focus on getting the entire Middle East to move in a different direction? I'm not sure about that. I'd like to think that maybe that would have been worth a try. I also think it might have been worth a try to do what we're doing now with Iran. Maybe all we need to get a real uprising and get rid of the bad leaders we don't like in the Middle East is to tell all the dissidents and tell all of his enemies where they're hiding their weapons. Because clearly the, there's enough Iranian people, Iraqi people, and by the way, Iraqi people started to really attack, regular people in Iraq started to attack Iraqi pro-Iranian uh, militia sites this week. So that's another thing that happened. But maybe that's all we needed to do. Maybe we didn't need to send 300,000 American troops or however many hundreds of thousands of American troops into the Middle East. 
Maybe we could have done that. I don't know. This is not a point. My point here isn't to indict the enti- is not to indict the entire Iraq war, but to bring up other possibilities. Because, folks, we've gone through now several days worth of a dog that isn't barking, and maybe we can learn a lesson from that and save some lives and do good policies at the same time. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I hope to speak to you again next week.